Well, a couple children found an eagle out in the woods, and it was wounded. And when they found that there was no mother or father eagle nearby, they decided that they would make it their own. Now, the young girl couldn't speak, but the boy was very vocal. And so they decided, through a lot of his vocal urgings, to take the eagle to a special meadow. And in this meadow, they fed the eagle, they bandaged it, and they helped it to grow stronger, they helped to heal it. They came into the meadow one morning, and they found the eagle standing on a stump, stretching and flexing its wings. And when they approached, he bowed to them and told them that it was time to go. And both of them were absolutely amazed because they didn't know much about eagles, but they knew that eagles didn't speak to people, much less children. But the eagle told them that the people in their village had found out about them and thought that they spent too much time with them, and so were intended to come and take them, take them away from them the next morning. And he said it was time for him to return anyway, back to the land of the eagles. But the boy and the girl were so crushed at this that they asked, couldn't we go with you? The eagle kind of smiled and said, no, because I have to fly through the heart of the sun itself. And they begged and they begged, and finally the eagle gave them the night to think about it and said that if they truly wished to make this journey, that they should meet him there before the sun comes up. The next morning they make their way into this meadow, and there's the eagle flexing and loosening up his shoulders for his long journey. And as the children approach, he bows to them yet again. And this time he asks them, are you ready? And they say, yes. And he invites them to climb around on his back. And as they climb on his back, he looks back at them. He says, remember, this is a long, long journey. And you may never be able to return again. It's not a dangerous journey, but we will fly through the heart of the sun. They both just shook their head, completely ready for this journey. And the eagle squatted. And he began to flap those tremendous wings. And he began to lift and rise. And at first it didn't look like he was going to be able to carry the two. But inch by inch he began to circle upwards until he was about treetop level. And about that time the boy and the girl looked down and they see the villagers coming through the woods. And they get so excited they're laughing because they knew they got away. They knew their eagle was safe. And their voices carried down to the villagers coming through the woods. And they look up and they see the young boy and the young girl on the back of the eagle. And they start hollering and shouting. But by that time the eagle had carried them so high that they had disappeared forever. And before long, the eagle disappeared into the heavens and began to fly directly toward the sun. And as he approached the sun, he looked back at the two of them and he said, close your eyes. And they closed their eyes and he passed through the heart of the sun. And when he came out the other side, he opened his eyes and they looked around and there were thousands of eagles soaring and screeching around them. And they looked down and they saw this beautiful green earth beneath them and the sky was a golden color. And slowly the one whose life they'd saved began to circle down and he landed softly in the grasses beneath them. And the two slid off. And then all the other eagles dropped out of the sky and formed a circle around them. And they were so excited and together all the eagles bowed to them. And then the one whose life they had saved stepped forward and as he stood before the boy and the girl he took his wing and he brushed it pushing his beak back and they saw that this wasn't an eagle at all but an eagle's head mask. And he shrugged his shoulders and the suit of feathers dropped off. And they saw that this wasn't an eagle, this was a spirit person. And that this wasn't the land of the eagles, this was the land of the spirit people. Then all the other eagles brushed back their eagle's head mask and they shrugged off their suit of feathers. And the children were amazed. And the eagle whose life they had saved stepped forward and he looked at the two and he said, in time, my young friends, 
We will make for you your own suit of feathers. We will make for you your own eagle's head mask. And we will teach you how to fly. And for the next year and a day, it was the happiest they'd ever been. And they got their suit of feathers and their eagle's head mask. And they spent their days just soaring in the heavens. At the end of that year and a day, the boy gets an idea, being a little bit impulsive. Wouldn't it be great to go back to the village now? They'd love us. We're eagle people. We can fly. We're special. The little girl just shook her head, wishing that she could speak to tell him no, 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 and get very serious about this. But the boy began to talk about it more and more. And the more he talked about it, the more he began to convince the young girl to do this. So they got up early one morning and they put on their suit of feathers and their eagle's head mask and they took to the sky. And before long they passed through the heavens and they flew directly toward the sun. And when they passed through the sun and came out the other side, they were circling their village. And the people were just waking up and lighting their morning fires and they saw the shadows of these two magnificent birds circling on the ground and they looked up and they saw these beautiful eagles overhead. And they woke everyone up because they knew that this was a sign. This was something magnificent. And slowly, the two began to soar down. And all the villagers just watched them. And then the two landed in their midst. And they stood there for a moment just enjoying it. And then the boy and the girl looked at each other. And then together, they brushed back their eagle's head mask. And they shrugged off their suit of feathers. <sighs> the crowd was absolutely amazed. These weren't eagles. This was the young boy and the young girl. And they were absolutely astonished at this. But they'd no sooner taken off their suit of feathers and their mask and it turned to dust and fell at their feet. And they were so shocked at this that they didn't know what to do. But the villagers were just making a tremendous fuss over them. Show us how you flew. This is magnificent. This is wonderful. It's a great sign. And they looked at each other, and they looked at the dust at their feet, and they didn't know what to do. And because they didn't know what to do, they did nothing. And when they did nothing, the mood of the crowd began to change. And someone in the back said, this is evil. This is bad magic. We can't have this. And someone else started to shout, and someone picked up a stick and threw it. And the two of them turned, and they ran to the woods. And the only thing that saved them was that they knew the woods better than any of the villagers had ever known it. The villagers hunted and hunted and they hid and hid. After a week, the villagers gave up their chase. But the two knew that they could never return. And so they decided to make one last visit to the meadow. And they walked into the meadow and they saw the cage where they had kept the young eagle whose life they had saved. And they looked up into the tree and they still saw a few threads of the bandage that they had put upon him. And both their eyes went to the sky, hoping that they'd see their friend, but it was empty. And they just plopped on the ground and sat there for the longest time staring at the earth. And then the girl's heart jumped a little bit. And she raised her eyes and it jumped again. And she saw a tiny speck far off in the heavens. And the boy felt her heart jump the second time. And he looked at her and he looked at her looking up. And that speck began to circle down. And as it began to reach treetop level, they saw it was the one whose life they had saved. And they both jumped up, and the eagle landed on a tree limb high above them, and the boy's going, yes, we can go back, we can go back, and the girl's crying tears of joy. And the eagle shakes his head and says, no, I'm sorry, my young friends, but you can never return. But you did save my life. And because you saved my life, there is still yet something that I can give you. 
and he reached in under his wing and he dropped a flute out from under it into the hands of the girl. And he looked at her and he said, with this flute, you will learn to speak. Because with the sound that you make from it, it will call the wind. And on the wind that you call, I will be able to fly from the other side of the sun. But it will only bring me no closer than the heavens above you. Then he turned and he looked at the boy. And he reached in under his other wing and he dropped a rattle into the hands of the boy. And he looked at him and he said, with this rattle, I will teach you a new rhythm. And I will come to you at night when you're sleeping and I will sing you a song. So that when your friend calls me on the wind, it will be that rhythm and that song that comes to you in your sleep that will call me out of the skies into this tree to where I now stand. And only when the two of you are able to do this together will I give you the last gift I have to give you. I will teach you the language of animals. I will teach you how to talk with nature. And before they could respond, the eagle took to the sky and disappeared. And the girl's looking at her flute, no idea how to make it sound. The boy's looking at the rattle thinking, this is a baby's toy. But that night when they slept, the sound of the flute came to the girl in her dreams. And the eagle came to the boy and sang him a song. And he heard the sound of the rattle. And when they woke up, they knew that what their friend had told them was true. And they began to practice trying to bring those sounds out of the sleep. And a week passed. And the girl woke up early and she could hear, she knew her young friend was curled around his rattle. She could hear him mumbling that dream song that was being sung to him in his sleep. She reached over, still holding on to those sounds that had come to her in her own dreams. She brought the flute up and she got her first sound and a breeze brushed across her. And the boy woke up and they realized they were closer. The boy had the sound of the rattle. And they began to work even harder to bring that sound out of the dreams. And another week passed and the girl woke up early and she could hear her friends rattle moving in his sleep. And she could hear him mumbling that dream song that was being sung to him. And she reached over and she grabbed the flute and she began to play it. And the breeze began to blow across her. And the boy began to whisper that song that had been sung to him. And his eyes popped open. He knew he had the words. And both their eyes went to the sky above and they saw far off a tiny speck. And the breeze grew steady as the girl continued playing. And the boy looked up and he began to sing directly to the eagle that song that the eagle had sung to him from his sleep. And slowly the eagle began to descend and he landed in that tree right above them. And he bowed to them yet again. And he said, you have learned well, my young friends. But today the lessons truly begin. Because from this day forth, I will teach you the language of animals. I will teach you how to talk with nature. Well, kiting is a process that both some hawks as well as some falcons will use, particularly the American kestrel, which is our most common falcon, and red-tailed hawks. And what they do is they fly into the wind. And when they fly into the wind, they start flapping their wings very quickly as a way of holding their position. And it's usually when they have a prey spotted beneath them and they're just getting ready to make their strike. 
And kiting is a process that if you know this about the animal, and if you've worked with that animal and, and let them know through meditation, through various exercises, that look, when I see this natural behavior of yours, I want it to inform me or be a message to me that there is something about to strike in my life. I use this frequently when I am traveling. And when I see that particular posture, I will always watch my speed because it's a real good indication that the police are running radar very close by and they're just setting up to strike. So I will often use that particular behavior as we can use the behavior of various animals if we learn about them as a communication to help us to understand and to forewarn as well as to provide insight for ourselves. One of the problems that we sometimes find in the modern shamanistic movement is there's a tendency to glamorize certain animals, thinking that some animals are more powerful than others, that some are more spiritually or more highly evolved or on a different level of the animal hierarchy where it really isn't true. No animal is any better or any worse than any other. They each have their own unique qualities and characteristics. If you ask a group which they would prefer to have as their spirit animal or totem, a vulture or a black panther, you usually get a very strong response in regards to the panther and you usually get snickers and giggles in regards to the vulture. Both animals traditionally have been associated with healing, very dynamic forms of healing. And yet when we study the animals, we find that of the two, it's much easier to work with the healing energy of a vulture than it is a panther. The vulture is a unique animal. Yes, it's the garbage man of the environment. It cleans up the dead carcasses. It has within its digestive tract a chemical that serves as a bactericide so that they're able to derive nutrition from what they are feeding upon. If you have vultures showing up in your life, it doesn't mean that you're going to get a craving for roadkill. But what it does indicate is that you will probably find a change in your digestion. Foods that you didn't like, you may start to like. Foods that you used to be able to eat lots of and never have any problems with, you may start to find they start... They they disagree with you. On the other hand, the panther is an animal that has often been associated with very dramatic, intense kinds of healing over traumatic issues within a person's life. Uh, it's, it's an animal that has over 300 voluntary muscles. It says there's a tremendous amount of ability there, but it also says you know, what are you doing with that ability? It's been associated with individuals all over the world that overcame traumatic situations. It was associated with Dionysus in the Greco-Roman tradition, who was known as the twice-born. And this was an individual who went through a period of tremendous insanity, a tremendous violence, and then became a healing influence. It was associated with Jesus. There's an old Jewish commentary on the scriptures called the Abodazara. And in it, it talks about a man who was healed in the name of Jesus Ben Panther. But we see this kind of traumatic change within it. And yet, of the two, the vulture energy is much gentler. It's still very revered among the Hopi and the Pueblo people. It was very highly revered within Egypt. It was associated with the goddess Maat. And they tell a story about what the soul goes through at that change called death in the Egyptian tradition. And the soul goes into this big chamber and all the gods and goddesses are there evaluating and weighing you, asking you what you've done with your life, what you haven't done, who you've hurt, and so on. And they have these stones and they're dropping them onto this huge scale. And by the time you get to the end of the line, the only one left is the goddess Ma'at, who is the goddess of truth. And all she has is a vulture feather. But her question is the most important. And her question, no matter how it is answered, if you answer it appropriately, no matter how many stones you have in one side of the scale, it will balance it. And her question is very simply, is there one who is glad that you lived? 
And if you could say yes, the feather would balance the scales and the soul would move on. We have to be very careful about glamorizing certain animals. This is why I often recommend if you have an animal show up in your life, go to the library, learn as much about that animal as possible. Don't assume that because it's a mouse that it's going to be um, something that's much more trivial than an eagle that would show up in your life. That mouse has shown up to say, look, this is what's going to work for you. My energies, my abilities, my potentials, my essence is what's going to work most effectively for you at this point in your life. There's often a misconception that there is only one animal or one totem for a particular person. But a totem technically is anything of the natural world that has significance for us. It can be a plant, it can be a stone, it can be a tree, it can be an animal. And we may have animals that show up just to provide guidance in a particular situation within our life, to give us a warning, to help us to develop a particular quality. And we will usually have several that are what are more commonly known as our lifetime totems and power animals. Doesn't mean that they're around us, but they're animals that resonate with us on such a level that we can draw on their energies through most of our life. Nothing in nature exists by itself. There's a process called trophism. It's the interconnectedness of all things within the natural world. The grass absorbs the sunlight. The grasshopper feeds off the grass. The frog eats the grasshopper. Snake eats the frog. Hawk eats the snake. Everything's connected to everything else. At the very least, you're going to have two. Uh, take a look at what that animal feeds upon and what feeds upon it. For example, Let's say you have skunks showing up in your life. Not necessarily something I recommend on a person-to-person -person basis, but we may find that driving home every night for a week, we drive through clouds of skunk spray. We get home, we turn on the Discovery Channel, and there is a program on skunks. We flip the channel, and there's Pepe Le Pew. We start encountering skunks, and we need to pay attention to that. Well, skunks, when they show up, are very, very amazing animals. They're very polite, and most animals in the wild usually only have one encounter with a skunk. It's rarely deadly, but it is always very, very memorable. And this is because skunks are polite creatures. And the first thing they will do is they will give you a warning. They will raise their tail and they will start pounding their front paws on the ground. It says, look, go away, I'm not kidding. If that is not heated, then they will turn their back to you. This is the second warning. And it says, really, go away. If that still is not heated, then the third thing they do is they look over the shoulder. And when they look over the shoulder, they look for the face. And when they see the face, that's when they spray. And they can spray five to six times for up to 10 to 12 feet very accurately. What this says, if you have skunks showing up in your life, maybe you need to start giving some warnings, give it twice, and then let them have it. Set some very clear boundaries, because that's part of what skunk can teach us. But we don't know that if we don't take the time to study it. Now, on the other hand, if we have skunks showing up in our life, we should also be studying the great horned owl because skunk is the favorite food of the great horned owl. This is predominantly because great horned owls have no sense of smell, which is real important if you're going to indulge in skunk as a meal. But great horned owls are probably the most ferocious bird of prey that we have on this continent. Very easily snap the neck of a woodchuck. It's very powerful, very aggressive, very assertive. And we need to take a look at that. Maybe we need to get more assertive about working with that animal and with setting our boundaries. Maybe we also need to take a look and see who the great horned owl people are in our life and keep them in a proper boundary and proper perspective. When we work with both, we're working with balanced medicine. This is why you will never have just one animal as a totem. There will always be balance, and there will always be some that just show up to provide a little communication for us.
Well, first of all, well, there's a number of four things in particular that we can learn from any animal. If we learn nothing else about that animal, by learning these four things, we find that our life starts to flow a little bit better. We're not banging our head against the wall. We're not getting frustrated. The first lesson that every animal will teach us is something what is called the lesson of life, death, and rebirth. Basically what this says is that every animal has its own cycle. Times in which it's more active, times in which it is least active, times in which it is more sexual, times in which it is not sexual. Take a look at what the natural biological cycle of that animal is. If it's a nocturnal animal, you may find yourself becoming more nocturnal because you align with that. That's a time that's going to be much more effective for you. Let's take, for example, the black bear. As late fall and winter approaches, the black bear begins to slow down its activity, starts to go into the den, and it's during the winter months that it gives birth to its young. And when it gives birth to its young, it's usually two, sometimes three cubs. In the spring, they come out of the den, and the bear cubs will often stay with the mother bear for up to two years before they go off on their own. If you have bears showing up in your life, particularly the black bear, as winter approaches, slow down the activities. Focus on two, maybe three projects. In the spring, bring them out a little bit. But also, recognize that it may take two years before those projects fully come to fruition for you and go off on their own. Look at the life cycle of that animal because it's shown up in your life to say, look, this is a rhythm. This is a cycle that's going to be more effective for you right now. And it saves us a lot of frustration. The second lesson that every animal teaches is the lesson of adaptation. Every animal adapts to survive within the wild. And there are physical ad adaptations and there are behavioral adaptations. A physical adaptation is something like a desert fox. They have very large ears. And this is because they dissipate a lot of their body heat through their ears. If you ha are a fox person or have foxes showing up in your life and you're having difficulty handling the heat, brush the hair behind the ears. You will feel a definite change in your body temperature as you we create that physiological similarity with that animal that we are aligning with. There are also behavioral adaptations. A mule deer never follows the same path to a water source. It knows it will is more likely to end up as prey if it follows that same path. It always alters it. So if you have mule deer showing up in your life, then you need to alter the way that you have done it. Don't do the same thing in the same way that you've always done it. It won't work for you. So to look at how that animal adapts and apply that same adaptation to your life. And again, we eliminate a lot of frustration in the process. Third lesson every animal will teach us, that animal will teach us something about using our potential. That animal has shown up because it has qualities and characteristics that we also have within ourselves, and it's a reminder to us. And if we use those qualities and those characteristics, that's what we need to be focusing on, not trying to be something that we're not. Those qualities of that animal are what's going to be most effective for us at this time. For example, a hawk that misses capturing a rabbit doesn't try and pretend it's a weasel and chase it on foot. It's just not going to work. That hawk has to learn to fly faster, strike harder, and, and stronger in the process. Take a look at the qualities and the characteristics of that animal. Those are the ones that you need to be focusing on at this particular time. Those are the ones that are going to be most effective for helping you to succeed with those different activities you're involved with at this time. Fourth lesson every animal will teach you is the lesson, something about the lesson of relationships. That animal lives within an environment that it shares with other animals. Sometimes those relationships are compatible. Sometimes they just tolerate each other. Take a look at what the natural environment is in which that animal is found. 
Is it a marshland? Marshlands are areas of decomposition, breaking down new growth. If that animal is associated with that kind of environment, that animal is trying to teach you something then about breaking down and opening up to new growth within your life. Take a look at how it relates to the other animals within that environment. And it will help us to see and to gain a perspective upon our relationships within our life as well. And if we learn nothing else about the animals, we look at those four things, it gives us a way of understanding how nature is talking to us. Because nature communicates to us all the time. We've just forgotten how to listen. Um, we have a tendency, especially within the modern world, we've separated the natural world from us. It's something to be studied. It's something to be examined. Unfortunately, it's something to be taken advantage of. And we fail to remember many times that we are part of nature. And everything that happens in the natural world has repercussions upon us. Everything that happens to us has repercussions upon the natural world. We are not separate from it. No matter how we cloak ourselves in civilization, we are part of nature. Oh, nature is talking to us all the time. We've forgotten how to listen. We've forgotten how to understand the messages. William Wordsworth wrote a poem called A Child Went Forth. And the first object that child saw, that object he became. And he became that object for a day or a series of days. Best thing an individual can do is take 10 minutes first thing in the morning. Just sit outside. You don't have to chant. You don't have to sing. You don't have to meditate. Just sit. At the end of that 10 minutes, what aspect of nature stood out for you? Was there a particular bird that you saw or heard? Was there a particular fragrance of a flower or a tree? At the end of the day, look back over the day's events and then look up something about that aspect of nature that stood out for you. It doesn't take more than two weeks of doing this that you start to see the connections and how nature is talking to us and providing messages for us if we learn to pay attention to them. But we get so wrapped up in our day-to-day -day lives that we sometimes forget that these communications are there. Well, rats are an amazing animal. Rats and mice and rabbits are the most common prey animals that we have and they because they are the most common prey animals they compensate they're very prolific you know if you take two rats and they have babies and their babies have babies and their babies have babies from those two rats in one year you can have over a million other rats so they provide um, they have a great ability to survive through being very prolific in their breeding aspects but rats are very industrious they are extremely intelligent there's an old story about Buddha that before Buddha left the earth he called all life forms to come to him so he could give them one message before he ascended and the only ones to show up were 12 animals and the first one to show up was the rat and because of this the rat was given the prestigious position of the first place within the astrological zodiac of the the east of the Chinese and it was it has thus become a symbol of industriousness um, great capacity for being creative and getting things accomplished where you wouldn't think that it would be able to Vision quest is a process that you find in many shamanic traditions and Native American traditions, and it involves, it's a very ritualistic way of going out into nature um, through fasting and through meditating and through, as a way of aligning with nature, some aspect of nature to get a more dynamic expression of the spirit animal or the animal or a message for your life and for your spiritual essence. 
it's a wonderful tool that has tremendous healing capabilities. There are easier ways of getting and determining what our spirit animals are. Um, but the vision quests have purposes other than just finding a power animal. There are, as I said, easier ways to find out what your spirit animals are. Just look at what animals are living within your own backyard, within your own environment. Those animals have adapted and learned to live in that same environment that you're living in. Take a look at how they're doing it, and they can show us how best to successfully live within that same environment as well. Spiders, um, one of the common threads that was taught all over the world was that if there was an animal that we were afraid of, this was probably one of our totems as well. And of course, one of the more common fears that we find in regards to the animal kingdom has to do with spiders. Spiders are amazing creatures. They, spiders, all spiders spin silk. Not all of them create the webs, but spider silk is the strongest natural substance that we have on this planet. And if we had a way of harvesting it, there's so much that we could do with it, but it is a natural substance. Oftentimes we find, too, that people don't understand spiders, and because they don't understand them and haven't taken the time to learn about them, they jump to these conclusions that it's something to stay away from. When spiders spin their webs, there's a very good reason why they don't get caught in their own webs. And this is because not only do they have oil glands on their legs, but predominantly because only some of the threads have the sticky. Those threads that go around the circumference in the circular form have all the sticky. Those that go directly out from the center have no sticky. So the next time you see a spider web, just touch your fingers against the two kinds of threads, and you will see that the ones that go around stick to your finger where the other ones don't. So the spider uses those. This is a very clear message. It says, look, don't take the roundabout way in dealing with things, um, or you're going to get caught, you're going to get entangled. Be direct, as the spider is. And spiders are great ec economists. They spin their webs, they sit back and let the food come to them. This is great. We can learn a lot from them of how to do the work and then let the results come in the manner and in the time that is best for us. They have eight eyes, but they see very poorly. This can tell us a great deal. They have fibers on their legs that are, make them very sensitive to touch and to vibration. And this says for those that have spiders showing up in your life, don't trust your eyes. Don't trust what you're seeing. Um, seeing uh, can be a little bit deceptive at this point. Trust what you're feeling. Uh, this will be what is going to be your strongest perception. Snakes, of course, is another great fear that people have, and again, it's because they're often misunderstood. Snakes, from the moment they're born to the moment they die, they never stop growing. I think this is amazing. We look at so many people, so many adults within our society that atrophied when they turn 16 or 17. They just completely quit any kind of growing from an emotional or mental aspect. Snakes can show us how to continually grow, shed the old, and move into the new. They are extremely uh, sense-oriented. Of course, one of the things that often bothers people about snakes is the tongue going in and out. They have at the roof of their mouth what's called a Jacobson organ. And the tongue coming out captures air particles, brings it in, touches it to the roof of the mouth and they're able to sense whether there's food danger or what is around them and again this tells those that have snakes don't trust what you're seeing trust what you're feeling trust what smells a little fishy for you right now trust in your other senses necessarily than the visual sense Snakes are very, very misunderstood. They help to clean up a lot of the rodent population. They help to keep the pests in control. Um, they're very, very misunderstood.
Well, the opossum is, of course, first the only marsupial that we have in this country. And all marsupials give birth prematurely, and then the young develop within the, the pouch and are able to do that. But possums have this wonderful ability of inducing almost a trance state instantaneously. Uh, play the idea of playing possum. And by all observable purposes, they seem to be dead. They seem to be something that even goes so far as to give off that musk fragrance often associated with death. So opossums can teach us how to take on the persona that we need for whatever the situation is within our life. So if we have possums showing up within our life, take a look at what we've been thinking about or most focused upon just prior to that encounter with that animal. And with possums, they can say, look, maybe you have to pretend to be a certain way for a time. They're the great character actors, and they're the ones who can show us how to adapt our behavior or to take on a persona that is going to be most effective for the situation, even if it means playing possum, even if it means showing bravery even when we're not feeling brave, or showing fear even when we're not really having and experiencing any fear. Well, reptiles in general are all cold-blooded creatures, and cold-blooded creatures will often take the temperature of the environment around them. If you're drawn or have reptiles showing up in your life, this may indicate that you're going to be a little bit more sensitive to the environment that you're around. Uh, it's not unusual to find that reptile people are very empathic in taking on the energies of the environment. If they're with a party group, they're the ones with the lampshades on their head. If they're with a depressed group, they're the ones that are suicidal. And they have to be very careful about what environments and how long they expose themselves to the environment because they take on the temperature. They take on the persona of that environment. There, there's many simple ways of determining what your spirit animal is, and or are, I should say, because we do have more than one. One way to ask yourself, what animal have you been most drawn to your entire life, especially as children? That, those animals that you were most fascinated by were often a reflection of those animals that will become our lifetime totems. It's not unusual, especially if you have more than one children, you'll often find that they have different likes and dislikes in regards to animals. By taking a look at the individual animals that children are drawn to, you can get a better idea of their individual creativity and their individual personas and personalities. We can also take a look at what animals are most frequently showing up within our life right now. Are we encountering more? And we can have an encounter in a variety of ways. It doesn't mean that we have to have a face-to-face -face encounter. A dream animal is just as real and just as significant as a life person-to-person face-to-face encounter. You may find, as I mentioned in regards to the skunks, you drive home every night for a week, you drive through clouds of skunk spray. Every time you turn on the Discovery Channel, there's a program on skunks. Um, you turn the channel and there's Peppy Le Pew showing up on the other channel. You start encountering them. You walk into a store, you're seeing that picture, that face. There's a lot of different encounters. Take a look at the animals that you're afraid of. These are probably also your tones. Doesn't mean that you have to learn to cuddle up with them, but you need to learn something about them so that you can work with their energies a little bit more. Take a look at those animals that are living in your own backyard, your own environment because those are animals that are sharing that same environment with you and they can teach you how to live more successfully within
in that same environment as well. Every society taught that if you were ever bitten by an animal, this was the animal's way of testing your ability to handle its energies. So you want to look at those animals, especially in a, and within our modern society, a lot of the bites come through domestic animals. So if you've had, for example, a dog bite, take a look at a wild member of the canine family, a fox, a jackal, a dingo, a wolf, because it's usually the wild counterpart that is going to truly be the spirit animal or the totem for you. The idea of determining exactly what a shaman is, for me personally, a shaman is anyone that learns to work with nature and work with the energies of nature and to develop a certain degree of compatibility. More traditionally, shamans are individuals that are very skilled in not only understanding nature but working with nature, everything from animals to herbs and working with the healing aspects. They have so many different capacities. I think anyone that learns to attune to nature and to work with nature and to let nature communicate to them through plants, through animals, and apply that is in their own way a shaman. A power place is a place where there is what is sometimes called a vortex of energy, uh, a, a place of higher energy, or a place where we can feel more of the spiritual essence in life. Anytime we have a vortex or an intersection, there is a thinning of the veil between the physical and the spiritual, and it becomes easier to experience certain energies. So if we're at the top of the mountain, for example, we're at an intersection between the sky and the earth, and so it's easier to experience those more intense energies and that thinning of the veil between the physical and spiritual and, and open up to those dimensions a little bit more easily. Nature, as I mentioned, is talking to us every single day. And all we have to do is just spend a little time out there and recognize that it can teach us everything from how to survive to how to accomplish things much more effectively. We've just forgotten how to listen or we assume that the only one that can teach us is someone that's got a degree or is standing in front of a blackboard where we have many other ways and capabilities of learning. Nature and animals, particularly in nature, help us to keep a sense of wonder alive, a wonder, sense of wonder about ourselves and our spiritual essence as well as our physical essence. And especially within our modern world, there's a tendency to have a shortage of wonder within our life. And sometimes we forget as humans that we can starve as much from a lack of wonder as we can from a lack of food.